I got so much to say this morning. First of all, it's just exciting to see the choir back up here. I know they didn't do a choir special today, but just to see them back up in front of us is a blessing, and I'm so glad to see that. And Daly, thank you for putting all that together. I'm also just thrilled to see how many people are here. When I woke up this morning, I was already getting text messages from individuals saying that they were not going to be here because of COVID stuff. And by the time I got dressed, I thought, man, there's going to be like 12 of us here in church today. So I am thrilled to see so many of you able to be out here with us. And of course, we do want to be wise. So I just use this as an opportunity to remind you. I've said it several times already, but it's good to be reminded. Uh, the only other, before I give that, did y'all plan to wear the exact same shirt and then sit beside each other? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just messing with my eyes here, that's all. Um, let me use this as an opportunity to remind you that if you are experiencing any symptoms or if you think that you have been exposed, uh, I love the response I got from someone recently. Uh, he said that he was unable to be in church because he had the virus and Actually, his quarantine time had passed, but he said, I love the people in the church too much for me to put them at risk. So he actually waited out one extra Sunday. Here's my issue. If you guys love the people in this church, if you are experiencing those symptoms, you're doing them a favor by not coming on that Sunday. So I want you to be here. Don't get me wrong. In fact, man, I, I want there to be no room for anybody from outside because I want it to be so full. But my point is, I want you to be safe as well. So I just want to use this as an opportunity to remind you of that. It is great to have you with us this morning to be able to worship and celebrate the Lord. Um, there was a, a Frenchman uh, who authored The Democracy in America. His name is Alexis, and I'm going to mess up his last name, but I think it's de Tocqueville. And he wrote this, Democracy in America, in the early 1800s. And as he wrote, he said this, I looked throughout America to find where her greatness originated. I looked for it in her harbors and on her shorelines, in her fertile fields and boundless prairies, in her gold mines and vast world commerce, but it was not there. It was not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her success. America is great because she is good, and if America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Tocqueville's thought is that a large part of what made America so great was brought on by the people of God who made up this country. In essence, the Word of God was more than just a historical book. Christianity was more than a political group. Our faith was more than just something that we talk about on Sunday. Instead, in Tocqueville's understanding, the people of God had been transformed by God and thereby they made America great. Oh, how we desperately need that once more. I told you at the beginning of this series that our nation, our church, and even us as individuals desperately need revival to take place. And that is absolutely the case. But what do we mean by revival? Some associate revival with a period of time when a guest speaker comes into town and preaches 
for a few days or maybe even a week. But that's not the kind of revival that we are seeking. Others will associate revival with a renewed appreciation for the arts. But again, that's not the kind of revival that we are seeking. What we need is a brand new, fresh experience with God that naturally causes us to be transformed. In fact, I've reminded you every week of this series that revival without transformation is no revival at all. The problem with this is that far too often individuals, even us, will have an encounter with God, yet it seems as if we walk away without any transformation. We walk away better informed. We walk away encouraged, but we are the same people that we were before this encounter. We've completely disregarded the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, which I read earlier. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And to be completely honest with you, the hardest thing for me as a pastor is to see people who have experienced what they would call revival who are still living enslaved by their sin. I had someone tell me this past week that you haven't been to church if the pastor hadn't stepped on your toes. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not claiming that people are pretending to have experienced revival. I'm not trying to judge anyone. I just think that most of us genuinely believe that we are good with the Lord because we said a prayer or because we went to church this Sunday because we got just a little bit of Jesus, yet somehow it's okay for us to remain in our sin. Before anyone says, amen, you tell them, pastor, please understand that I might be talking about you. Just over the past two years, I've seen some people in the church who have gossiped and complained under the, whether it's intentional or unintentional, under the appearance of, I just want to see if other people are thinking the same way, or I just want others to be able to pray about this with me. By the way, there's not a pressing issue where I'm getting these, but it makes me sick to get an email from godly folks who start with, I've talked with several people who feel the same way. That's called gossip, and a revived spirit will not tolerate it. So over the past two years, I've seen godly people who gossip and complain. I've seen godly people, and I'm using air quotes for godly, by the way, who are living sexually immoral lives, Again, I'm not talking about those outside the church. Those who have comfortably allowed all kinds of drugs and alcohol into their lives. Those who are deceitful and mean-spirited toward each other. And those who no longer see the need to regularly be a part of the church. I've seen parents who have done more to introduce their kids to compromise rather than a fully devoted life for Christ. And it breaks my heart as the pastor. In addition, the two key principles that set our denomination apart in the early days were holiness and social justice. 
And I'm not sure that there are many in the church who still care about these things. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, I'm not passing judgment on anyone today, but I am sharing with you what breaks my heart as the pastor. People that I love and care for, people that I see so much potential in. And then I see what we settle for. I see a church full of people who know that they have been set apart for something great. They know that they are loved by God and that he has a plan for their lives and the lives of their children. Yet it would seem that transformation has not taken place. In essence, we have become no different than those outside the church, and it's not the way that it's supposed to be. We need revival. G.K. Chesterton, by the way, if all of those things that I just said, you say, well, that doesn't get me. First of all, I celebrate because the things that I just described are not attractive and they should not be a part of the body of Christ. But what's happened is for far too many of us, we have allowed those things to remain and they do not belong in the life of a believer. That should not be a part of who we are. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite Christian writers, said this of our fallen world. He said, it's kind of like living in a shipwreck. We find many treasures, but clearly things are not as they are meant to be. The only way for things to return to the way they are meant to be is for genuine revival to take place. The kind of revival that results in transformed lives. There are many such revivals that are described in the scriptures, and I don't have a time to look at each of them, but I have picked out a few that I think we can relate to today. The first one I'll share is not in your notes this morning, primarily because I think that we've all heard it so many times that we might miss the point sometimes of the story. It's about the story of the woman caught in adultery. This woman goes from the feeling of shame because of what she had done to the feeling of fear over death as the religious nuts start talking about the law and what she deserved. And according to the law, those religious nuts were correct. She deserved to die. Then Jesus addresses the accuser with that familiar statement, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I imagine that as he spoke those words, that she cringed with her whole body tensing up, expecting the blows to start coming at her immediately. See, she wasn't looking at the sins of others. She was looking at her own sin, and she knew that she was an ungodly woman who had been making ungodly choices. And if she gets what she deserves, she will be stoned to death. But not a single stone is thrown. Instead, one by one, her accusers walk away in shame. Understand that at the very beginning of this story, she is the one who is filled with shame. 
She recognizes she has sin in her life. She knows that what she has done has been wrong. She is embarrassed to be called out in front of all of these other people. She is filled with shame. But in this moment, as Jesus chooses not to point out her sin, but rather to point to the sins of others, her accusers walk away in shame, realizing that they all were no better than her. Do you remember Jesus' words after they had all left? Where are your accusers? Well, there were none. Jesus adds that he also does not condemn her, but he gives her some important words of instruction. Now go and sin no more. The expectation was that she would be changed. Jesus is going to stand up and preach tomorrow. I don't want you back in front of me again. Yes, you've been forgiven. Yes, you received grace. You shouldn't be walking this path over and over again. Go and sin no more. The expectation was that she would be changed. She would not continue in her sin. You know, there's no definitive evidence as to what would happen with this woman moving forward. Although many theologians believe that this woman would become known as Mary Magdalene, a woman who plays very prominently in the story of Jesus Christ, even being one who goes to the tomb following the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. You see, her encounter with Jesus very much changed who she was. Well, the second story is a familiar story as well. It's uh, normally known as the woman at the well. It's found in the Gospel of John chapter 4, if you would like to turn there with me. It is a beautiful story about what appears to be a chance encounter with Jesus, although there was no chance involved in this story. The whole encounter had been orchestrated by God. The first few verses tell a narrative that includes Jesus at a well during the hottest time of the day. Why would he go then? Nobody goes to the well at that time, but Jesus is not alone. There's a woman who has come to draw water, and as she draws water, Jesus strikes up a conversation. Listen to the words of John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. 
in the following verses, Jesus would address areas of sin within her life. A part of what made her come out to the well at that time of the day, at the hottest part of the day, attempting to avoid the ridicule of others simply because she hadn't made the best choices. But more than that, he would introduce her to a hope that she had likely never known before. Finally, the time comes for her to leave, not not because there were more important things for her to do than to spend time with Jesus, but rather because she needed to accomplish something. Look at what happens next, beginning in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And then skipping down to verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You know, it is so intriguing to me that many believed in him simply because of this woman's testimony. This was the same woman who would have come to the well at the hottest part of the day because she was likely an outcast as one who had been married many, many times, and the man she was living with then was not even her husband. Yet it is her testimony that convinces them regarding who Jesus is. Wow, what kind of transformation would have to take place to cause even those who disliked you, who mocked you, who perhaps hated you, to come to belief in Christ? What kind of transformation would have taken place in her? Eventually, they would believe for themselves, but it began because she was being transformed by an encounter with Jesus Christ. Another example of transformation occurs in the story of an, another unnamed character. The first one was the woman who had been caught in adultery. We guess that she might have been Mary Magdalene, but we really don't know for sure her name. In Luke chapter 8, it tells us of a man who was filled with many demons. In his case, this isn't, there isn't a specific sin that is addressed, but rather a group of evil spirits that have dominated his life. To help you remember this story, this is the one whom Jesus asked the question, what is your name? And the man does not answer, but rather the demons answer. My name is Legion. They had such control over him that he could not even function in society, and he has been relegated to live among the tombs. In other words, the people had already tried to help, but they had reached a point where they simply decided to give up on him. Well, Jesus was more than able to deliver this man. In verse 33, we see that then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. 
Again, I, I imagine that most of us have heard this story at some point or another. But what stands out to me is not so much the fact that Jesus set this man free. I think it's a great story and it's a great example for us to know that our God is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. But instead, what's beautiful to me is the transformation that takes place in this man following his encounter with Jesus. One of the Gospels notes that when others came along, they found this man seated and in his right mind. But as Jesus prepares to leave, because he was just traveling through, he boards his boat, and this unnamed man who could not function among the people and had to be relegated to the tombs, yet now he is found seated and in his right mind, this unnamed man asked to join Jesus. An understandable request. Jesus had just delivered him. The people in that community had pretty much just cast him out. He might even harbored just a little bit of hard feelings toward those that would have been known as family. But Jesus won't let him come. Instead, look at verses 38 and 39 of that passage. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, we're not going to read the entire next few chapters here, but I want you to know what happens down the road. Jesus returns to this region. He's actually in an area that's, he's on the outskirts of an area known as the Decapolis. The Decapolis was basically 10 cities. It's a Greek term and it's, it's pretty much a large metropolitan area. As Jesus comes to the region of the Decapolis, he is greeted by all these people who have heard that he was coming that way and they're bringing out their sick and they're bringing out those who are possessed by demons and they're bringing out anyone who might have any type of need. It's funny because when Jesus showed up on this day, the only one to greet him was a man who had been relegated to the tombs. My question is what changed? I'll tell you what changed. This man... This man had shared what Jesus Christ had done for him. They saw him and they knew, that's that guy. That's the one we sent to the tombs. He's crazy. Stay away from him. Oh, no, I'm not crazy anymore. Look, listen to what God did for me. I had an encounter with Jesus Christ and he cast out all these demons and now I'm fine. Of course, now they're looking at his excitement and thinking, I don't know if he is fine. But he, he's so excited he can't contain himself. What happens is he begins to show them that he is not the same man. It's because he had an encounter with Jesus Christ and he had been transformed. There were likely many times that this man had proclaimed things. He was filled with evil spirits and it's likely that he shouted constantly. We already know that he would become extremely violent, even hurting himself and threatening others. But now this man proclaims something that seems unbelievable. Do you remember who I used to be? Not anymore. And that's because of what Jesus did in me. 
What made him so believable was the fact that he had been transformed by an encounter with Jesus Christ. Let me give you one more example of this. It's not in your notes this morning. And for this one, we'll need to go back all the way to the Old Testament book of Joshua. It's the story of Rahab. And uh, if you're part of our Wednesday night Bible study, you've heard us talk about the story of Rahab on many occasions. She is a prostitute in the ungodly Canaanite city of Jericho. But she would have a genuine encounter with God that would change everything for her. Joshua 2 tells us that she becomes God's tool to deliver some spies. And in return for this act of grace and protection, she is spared when the Israelites come in and defeat the city of Jericho. But she's not just spared. She is redeemed. She is welcomed into the people of God. I told you previously that her profession was that of a prostitute. That means that she was very low on the social ladder, even among her own people. In fact, she was likely hated by most of the women in the city of Jericho. There were some men that liked her, but they didn't want other people to know that they liked her. She would have been very poorly respected among the people of Jericho. But not in Israel. When she is delivered, she is welcomed in as one of them. By the way, prostitution is still not okay. It wasn't okay in Israel. But they welcomed her in as if she were a part of the family. She's not an outcast in any way. She is the hero who rescued the spies. And it's important to note that there is never any indication that she continued as a prostitute among the people of Israel. You see, she had been redeemed, and it was expected that she would be changed as a result of that. In fact, just to emphasize that, consider the fact that in the Gospel of Matthew, as we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Rahab is listed as being the great, great, great grandmother of King David. God took a woman who was a prostitute, who would have been hated among her own people because of it, and God gave her a position of importance and beauty. You can rest assured that this was a woman who had been completely changed. And that's what should happen when people have an encounter with God. Now briefly, I want to make this is practical as possible for us today. How is an individual changed? How can we be transformed? We've seen an awful lot of people who have been saved, who have been part of the church, but we struggle to even see if there's any transformation at all in their lives. So how can we be transformed? The first thing we must do is to look at Jesus Christ. I recently had the privilege of spending a few evenings inside the Clemson University football indoor practice facility. And of course, they have all these pictures on the walls of former athletes who accomplished great things, as well as banners to help celebrate different championships. But there was one banner that caught my attention. I don't know if it'll be on the screen here or not. It said, best is the standard. 
In other words, pretty good is not the standard. Being better than other people is not the standard. The standard we are called to is to be the best above everyone else. There is no one else that is going to live up to that standard. That's the standard that needs to happen in the church. And that's the standard that we see in Christ. As we look at Christ, what we are doing is looking at the best. He is the one who sets the standard that we are to live up to. Now, those are big shoes to fill, and I get that. But that's what God has called us to do. Jesus called us to be holy just as he is holy. The apostle Paul declares that he imitates Christ Jesus, and we are to do the same. We read in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Know that God wants all of us to be transformed. But transformed into what? He wants us to be transformed into the image of Christ. Certainly, Jesus came as a sacrifice for our sins, but he also came as a model showing us what we ought to look like. So this is where we need to begin. Look at Jesus. The second thing we must do is what we talked about last week. We focus heavily on the word of God. Well, we need to renew our minds through God's word. I read an article this week about the losing battle that many pastors face every week. They live surrounded by sin, even participating in sin, and getting caught up in all the petty things of this world, yet then they get to stand up on Sunday and preach a message that is supposed to be God-honoring. They're fighting a losing battle because they're surrounded by garbage all week, yet they want to put out something with a pleasing aroma on Sunday mornings. But this isn't just a problem for preachers, is it? Every time I go to the dump, I think about the people who work there all day. I bring my kids, and the first thing I hear from them is, this place stinks. I'm there for five or ten minutes, and I feel like I carry the stench of the garbage with me for hours afterwards. Can you imagine being surrounded by it all day long? How much cleaning do they have to do to alleviate that stench? Well, there are many in the church who are surrounding themselves with the filth of sin. They watch things that they shouldn't be watching on television. They're enveloped in what's happening on social media or in other forms of news. And then they expect to give off the pleasing aroma of Jesus Christ afterwards. But there are two things that must happen if you're going to give off the pleasing aroma of Christ. First, you're going to need to clean up. You need to step away from the filth and get clean. The truth is that you probably can't do that on your own. You're going to need God to be the one to clean you up. But the second thing you'll probably need to do is to find a nice fragrant perfume. And I'm talking about the fragrant aroma of Christ. Far too many of us are expecting transformation so that we will be different people, but we're still going to the dump. We're spending all our time there, and then we expect we're going to show something different out here. 
And it just doesn't make sense. You know what some of us do? We walk away and we're still carrying that stench with us. And we think, well, I'll just put on a little bit of perfume and I'll cover it up. All that does is make it smell worse. Because now you got two different smells that are there. Many of us do that exact same thing with Christ. And what we, we do is we spend all this time in the world and all this time with the junk and the garbage that sin brings about, the stench that comes with it. And then we just want to add a little bit of Jesus to it. And all that does is increase the smell. We justify so often how we can somehow keep the filth yet still find a way to put off the fragrant aroma. We fail to clean up the junk. We fail to leave the dump in the first place. And then we put that perfume on. It just causes more confusion than anything else. So like I shared last week, we need God's word to help renew our minds. Romans 12:2 says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Know that you must make a conscious decision for this transformation of the mind to take place. It's going to happen, but it's not going to happen by chance. So what do you need to do? Change what's going into your mind and then make God's word an active part of your life. I read somewhere recently that God's number one purpose in your life is to make you like Jesus Christ. The spirit of God uses the word of God to make the child of God more like the son of God. And that statement is true. Final piece to experiencing transformation is spending time faithfully with Jesus. In John 15, verse 4 through 5, we read this. It's Jesus' words. He said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Later in Acts 4.13, the disciples would be recognized as unschooled, ordinary men. Yet it was noted that they had been with Jesus. Spending time with Jesus naturally changes who you are. Have you ever been around someone so much that you began to think like them? to speak like them, you could finish their every sentence? Well, what if that happened with Jesus? What if you spent so much time with him that you began to think like him, to love like him, and to even speak like him? I believe that true transformation can take place, but it will not happen on accident. What will need to happen is we as the body of Christ will need to decide to leave the junkyard to leave the dump, and to go and to find where that pleasing aroma comes from. It comes from Jesus Christ. So I encourage you, I call on you as the church to allow transformation to take place. Tell you the truth, if, if you're okay just staying in your sin the way you are, you have completely misunderstood what revival is all about. Do, do you understand that? I mean, it sounds good and it feels good because you're a part of a church and I want you to be a part of a church. But, but here's the thing. God didn't save us so that we would remain in our sin. 
breaks my heart to see the body of Christ not living like the body of Christ. It ought to break your heart to see that as well. So let's make sure that from this point forward, we will walk as those who are being transformed by the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, we are so honored to know that we can bring our needs and requests to you. But our greatest need is not physical. It's not someone needing healing. It is not an individual needing a job. It is not someone needing encouragement. Father, our greatest need is the transforming power of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of sins that has come through his shed blood. Thank you for the spirit of God that has been promised to us, that now dwells in your people. Lord, I pray that you would allow that same spirit to begin to transform everything about us. I pray that our desires would change, that our actions would change. I pray that you would give us a hunger for you above all else. And if that means getting rid of some of the other influences that have been present before, Lord, I pray that you would help us to leave the dump behind. And that from this moment forward, we will walk in the aroma of Christ. Lord, change who we are. Make us holy as you created us to be. Father, I pray today that you would grant forgiveness where we have fallen short, where we have not been transformed and we have allowed sin to remain. But I pray that right now you would change our path, that we would no longer walk the same way we've walked before. Lord, give us the strength to stand and we will give you the praise for what you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. My hope today is that you will allow the transforming power of Jesus Christ to come over your life. I told you that this series uh, lasts throughout the month of August, and next week we're still looking at elements that uh, basically it's called the recipe for revival is what I've entitled this series. And one of the things we're going to look at next week is the healing power of God. I told you last Sunday that when the great revivals were taking place uh, back during uh, the Second Great Awakening, uh, one of the common threads was that people truly believed that Jesus was the only one who could actually heal. And we're going to look at really the power that God has made available to us. And I know this kind of makes us a little bit uncomfortable because we're kind of sounding charismatic here. But you know what? It's what the Word of God says, and we're not going to... Um, ignore that portion of it because it makes us uncomfortable. It is such a blessing to have you with us this morning. Hopefully you'll come back. Go in peace.